a photograph is nothing but a bunch of marks on a piece of paper we bring meanings to it it doesn't have any meanings on its own and therefore a photograph can have limitless meanings which is one of its sort of joys but also people want to know something about um, a photograph so even if you have no n nothing else other than you know there it is um, this photography podcast is brought to you by frames quarterly printed photography magazine here is your today's host w scott olsen with another fascinating conversation Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to another podcast from Frames Magazine. My name is Scott Olson, and today we are going into a kind of photography that is really, really close to my heart. We're going into black and white. We're going into history. We're going into documentary work that is really profound, not only photographically in terms of composition and, and light and shadow, but in terms of its social uh, relevance. We're, we're talking in other words, with David Wright. David has been all over the place. He is the curator of F8 Magazine. He has been teaching uh, photography for a long time. He studied at the London College of Printing. He's worked in commercial, wedding, medical, and government photography, lectured for a while, and really, really intriguing. He works only in black and white 35 millimeter film and has decided this is an act this is a conscious act has decided to never make the transition into the digital world preferring as he says the craft work of the analog process david welcome how's everything over in england today hi there everything's good here we haven't melted yet <coughs> under the extreme temperatures <laughs> but we're doing good thank you for having me we should tell everyone we're recording this in the middle of July, and the UK has just set all sorts of records for uh, high temperatures and stuff. So it, it, it is a challenge for everybody these days. David, I, I want to jump you know, right into your work. Those of you that, that are you know follow Frames Magazine on the Facebook page, you have been seeing a lot of his work recently about Ireland from the 1980s and 1990s. Um, before, you know, what David is, is referring to is the Celtic Tiger pounced. Uh, the Celtic Tiger was actually an economic event. That's when uh, prosperity just exploded in Ireland. And then, of course, it completely collapsed right after that as well. But these images are all from before that. David, these images are from 30 and 40 years ago. Why, why are you bringing them out now, and why do you think they are so absolutely compelling to an audience in 2022? I started this project, I suppose you could call it, back in uh, the 1980s when I met my wife-to-be. She came from rural Ireland. Her mum was from a family of 13, and they they had a farm way over on the, the, the west coast, just below Galway on the border of Clare. They lived they lived in a sort of thatched stone cottage originally and then built the family house right next to it. Um, my wife spent most of her sort of younger years going on holiday then. And uh, once we sort of started dating, obviously, you know, I went out there with her. I was just, I just fell in love with the place. And, and what I noticed was that... Um, there was a lot of European money going in 
they were building motorways and uh, starting to sort of make the west, the west coast hadn't got it yet but the east coast was starting to become more urbanized and i thought i'm gonna have to document this sort of rural lifestyle because i want my kids to see you know something about their origins before it all disappears so i started on this sort of journey really and uh, every time we went back the camera came out and i I gradually sort of found my way around documenting sort of the things that people did on a daily basis and I realized that, you know, I was seeing something that would probably disappear, you know, and, and I had to do something about it. So um, I photographed everything, basically, everything that looked interesting <laughs> <coughs> in black and white on my old Pentax 35mm camera. And uh, I processed everything myself, printed it all myself, and uh, then rapidly put it away in a negative file and forgot about it for about 30 years. But during that time, you know, I, I went to weddings and funerals and, um, you know, I saw uh, little old ladies living in in sort of stone cottages with half of the sort of previous century still there with the turf fire and then in one corner a microwave it was incredible <laughs> and uh you know her family still lived there there were sort of some some members of the um well some of her mum's brothers and sisters had, had still there the rest were a diaspora who'd moved to england and then america but you know the ones that were there we visited and uh one particular visit springs to mind it was brilliant it was um it, it was tom and sheila lived up in in knock i mean mayo you know you probably heard of knock the, the shrine well they live right nearby in a farm there mm-hmm. yep. they were they were yep. farmers anyway we went to stay and uh it was bacon and cabbage and potatoes for tea and uh then sheila realized there was no uh uh, there was no orange squash, so she said, "Tom, you get the car out and go and uh, buy some, and uh, take David along with you." So, you know, I went, I went with him, and uh, we were going to have to travel across the bog to a little tiny store about half an hour away. Anyway, uh, I said, "I'll go in my car," and he said, "No, no, no, I'll drive." He said, "Go and get in," and so I went round and. Uh, got in and realized there was no seat and he said just sit on the floor there so there we were whizzing across you know the countryside bog of you know mayo i'm sitting on the floor he's driving like a maniac um it wasn't really about 30 mile an hour but it seemed that way when you're sitting on the floor peering over the dashboard wondering if you would get there alive that was an incredible journey it was these sorts of things that you know what made my experience sort of a real one there but it was it was that rural life that was setting out to document that, David, that is so cool. But you're, you're doing something radically different than sort of the, the mindset right now. You said you got out your camera to document this way of life for children you didn't have yet. Most of us, you know, we, we take a digital picture, we get it up on Instagram, you know, that afternoon. Um, forget printing it and then putting it in a drawer for 40 years. Do you do you approach photography, I mean, documentary, yes, but do you approach photography as a historian? Now, there's, there's, a, there's a difficult question <coughs> and a very interesting <laughs> one. I think uh, a documentary photographer automatically becomes 
a kind of historian, or rather they contribute to the historical records by virtue of, of the fact that you take something today and it goes into the, the past and becomes something that can be looked back on. I don't think I, I do that uh, solely because I also see documentary photography as a, sort of an interesting thing that I do. Some people call it a hobby, which really annoys me because uh, I don't make any money out of it any longer. So that's what I think they call it. But um, <clears throat> uh, I don't want to make money out of it now. I, I, I solely take pictures to record things that interest me. So my my sort of projects, if you like, uh, vary and they're ve- some are very long term and some are very short. Like the island one lasted sort of two decades there's uh, uh, another one that I've been working on that started in the late, uh, let me think, no, the early 90s, um, and I'm still doing it. Uh, that one's got a draft title of In Search of Christianity. I don't really know whether that's the title that I want to keep, but it's basically about trying to find um, those people and photograph those people and document what they do who really, you know, put their Christian faith before anything else and that that journey has started in Ireland and it's taken me sort of through into England there was a pause but in the last sort of three years or four years it's taken off again and um, one one of my um, friends Simon Tasker who set up we set up F8 with described it as my magnus opus because it's probably the last thing i'll do because it will carry on forever until i die probably but uh, only recently um i was in york photographing the um, mystery plays now these are very interesting because they are just ordinary amateur people um performing if you like there are eight plays that are based on stories from the Bible. So like you've got the creation and Noah and uh, the nativity and the crucifixion. And um, they, they're in a wagon and they go from one place to another on the streets. And um, they, they are what some people would describe as mamas, which are street performers. And these plays are centuries old. And this particular group, haven't you know they perform them every four years there was a slight delay during covid but then only about a month ago um they they were out on the streets performing them again and uh so there i was photographing them um and they'll be gone now for another four years um david we should tell everybody your website uh which is david Wright as one word uh and Wright is w-r-i-g-h-t uh david Wright dot photography there are a number of david Wrights in the photo world out there so i want to make sure you get the right one and the instagram page uh is at david gilbert Wright, and all all of your portfolios are there. So the In Search of Christianity work is there, as well as uh, a number of others, which leads me to um, mention something that you also say in, in your uh, self-description. You like projects. You you like long-term, insert, in, you know, immersive projects. What What about that kind of deep dive is appealing for you? I started at school getting interested in painting 
didn't have a camera, didn't really know much about photography, <clears throat> and uh, I decided that um, I wanted to go to art college. And so it was while I was at art college that I discovered photography, and I realised that um, it was a lot quicker than painting. So um, that was that led me to find my way to in the London College of Printing, which was probably one of the sort of leading colleges in the country. And I was just lucky to get a place there because, um, firstly, there were hundreds of applicants for just 30 places. And secondly, I didn't really have much in the way of a portfolio of photographs. But what I did have and what I've developed over that over the, my career is a way of looking that involves a number of things. Firstly, it's slightly painterly in the way I frame things. So I would sort of describe many of my pictures as having a kind of elegance. They still are obviously photographs, so things are cut off, you know, and they're obviously outside of the frame. But some people, you know, use the word composition. So in terms of, you know, using that term, they are composed or thought about very carefully. Now, obviously, you know, for some of the pictures that I take, you can't think that quickly so therefore it's a learned thing it's become intuitive and that I think comes with experience over time that uh, I've developed this sort of way of seeing that has a kind of intuitive elegance in its composition without trying to sound too pompous it's just tidy it's a tidy picture <laughs> is another way of thinking about it that's the first thing and secondly in answer to your question about projects whilst that um art college you know you were encouraged to think about things and 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 develop a a line of um, investigation and develop a kind of philosophical approach and so I obviously took that into photography and carried it on into my career Uh, so when I wasn't working for other people I was doing my own sort of photographs and I was just working on themes and photographs some were obviously just um sort of one-day event things, but other things would be sort of loosely around a series or they would be a serial. It, either way, they would be around the same kind of subject over a period of time. And and the final thing that you, you mentioned there is about immersion um, or immersiveness. This, for me, is really important. I'm not a, a photographer who, who adopts a fly-on-the-wall approach. I think you... You know, it's important that I get to know the people and they become aware of me and they know what I'm trying to do. And I'm not trying to produce objective photographs. They they are, you know, a lot of them are subjective. You can't get away from the fact that the people know I'm there and I'm a photographer, so I'm selecting things. So I'm actually unashamedly not trying to be objective i'm trying to say look this is what i want you to look at and there's an emotion here or there is something uh, that is important that you know i need you to to look at and get something from and therefore that kind of level of immersion is is an important part of how i work and it can vary from very sort of thin immersion which is like you go along and you meet someone and you spend a day there it's like um, a paradigm because at the other end is total immersion if you think about that in terms of say um, Vincent van Gogh his self-portraits 
were an example of total immersion. They were all about him, and there were a whole lot of them over time because he was trying to explore something. Um, the nearest I've got to that is, um, because I'm always behind the camera, is to photograph things right inside my life. In fact, one of the hardest jobs I did was um, my dad died um, just over two years ago, and I couldn't really come to terms with it. Um, and so I photographed his funeral, and it was one of these COVID funerals. You know, only 10 people were allowed at the time, I just wanted to photograph it because I just wanted to sort of, I don't know, do what I thought was something to help me think about what had happened. And then when I looked at the pictures, you know, I could start to see it as a reality. But the, the these pictures are really close to home and they are really all about me and my feelings and my family and that event. And although it was a short period of time, it's a very deep immersion into a particular subject. Absolutely. David, so much that I want to unpack in, in what you just said. L let's let's go back just a second because I'm looking at your portfolios here and th there are sort of, I'm, I'm sort of imposing this, but there's sort of two threads going on. There is the Queen Silver Jubilee. There is the Brick Lane stuff. And by the way, I love the Brick Lane stuff because you know I've been there many times, but only in the last 10 years. So it, it, it's been radically transformed now from what it used to be and how it first gained, gained some fame and, and attention. So I love those images. But those two portfolios in particular are pretty much serendipitous street photography. And you, you talk about experience leading you towards composition and a painterly background. To tell me how you approach the serendipitous. How do you know when a moment is something you want to capture, especially since you're working in film and you can't rattle off you know, 45 pictures and hope you got something good. Well, I think that's what's taken me years to develop. And I guess I might have just been lucky early on then because they were right at the start of my career. When you're a photographer, you know, you, you, you're standing there and, and the world and this, the events are unfolding in front of you. And it's about wondering what is it that is going to happen here and 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 how do I record it? And so there are a number of things um, that are important. It's really hard to sort of say, how do you get something in one or two or three frames that, like you say, many people shoot 50 of? First of all, it's about developing an idea of where you should be, where you're going to stand, um, you know, when something's going to happen. And... Uh, that's really important as a photographer because um, most people stand too far away and all they do is get the backs of things or nothing at all. So you, you need to understand what it is you're trying to do and possibly do something that Ansel Adams used to do, which is to um, pre-visualize an event. Now, you know, I'm sure I can be sort of criticized like mad about how can I go and pre-visualize, say, um, what was going on in Brick Lane? Well, I think to a certain extent you can because um, you know what's there and, you know, you know it's sort of a number of streets and it was full of textile industry and sort of Asian people who had moved into the area. Uh, so what you're looking for is some shots that tell the story. And I think that's that. That's something that if you look back um, 
into the picture post era or for American viewers life, um, you'll see that, you know, to do a picture story, you've got to, first of all, have an idea of what it is you're going into and how you think it's going to unfold and be ready for the unexpected. So, you know, that takes you then to your technique and also your equipment because, um, if you're going to be ready for anything, you've got to adopt a particular kind of strategy um, and have the right kind of equipment. And Cartier-Bresson said, uh, you know, well, you know, your best bet is to get yourself into the thick of the action. And I can't remember who it was who said, um, yeah, and you don't need a telephoto lens. You need a wide-angle lens, but just get right in there and it'll all be sharp anyway. So you preset you know, what I do is I preset my uh, equipment because I haven't got autofocus and I haven't got um, auto exposure and none of that stuff. Um, I'm using an old Nikon. So, you know, if I set it about sort of 12 to 15 feet on a wide angle lens and I've taken an exposure reading, say it's around F8, well, it's going to get me somewhere near where I need to be. And uh, then if something happens that's unexpected, you're, you're already in a position to do something about it. Let's take just a quick break. We hope very much that you are enjoying today's episode. The very fact that you are listening to this podcast suggests that photography means a lot to you. And if that's the case, you might want to have a look at Frames, quarterly printed photography magazine. We truly believe that excellent photography belongs on paper. Visit readframes.com to find out more about our publication. And now, back to today's conversation. Absolutely. You, you know, David, you, I'm grinning because you talk about pre-visualization, which I do all the time, but I find that almost really depressing. I'll start to imagine a picture and I find myself thinking I'm imagining somebody else's picture, something I've already seen. So there, there's that real challenge to sort of, you know, pre-visualize and then go beyond what, you know, is, is easily imaginable. Something that, that I really admire about your work, and, and again, everybody, go to the website and look at the portfolios. You have a number of portfolios here with the same subtitle. You've got, um, you know, Morris, a modern tribe of England. You've got, you know, pagans, a modern tribe of England. Railway enthusiasts, a modern tribe. So, so tell me about what you mean by a modern tribe. And, and even more importantly, a lot of this stuff is portraiture. So what about the portrait of a modern tribe is speaking to David Wright's soul? Well, I was a great admirer of um, Edward Steichen's Family of Man exhibition and what he tried to do. And uh, I think I was down in Laycock Abbey, which is the home of Fox Talbot. We were there having just visiting and um, looking at the exhibition of old cameras and stuff. And I saw a couple of pictures by someone. And um, for some reason, I just started to think about what, what I wanted to do in terms of portraiture. And then I started to think, well, um, we live in such a diverse country. England, it's very hard to put your finger on what is English now. About... 50 years ago, it might have been quite typical, you know, Yorkshire pudding and a bloke in a flat cap and <laughs> stuff like that. 
but um, nowadays um, it's quite different. We are diverse. We we and not only in sort of race, but also in the way in which people use their time and behave and the groups they belong to. So that was one one part of the thing that got me going. But the other part was this. This is like about five years ago. I started to do some reading about how important it was to belong to groups. And there'd been uh, numerous studies across the world, but predominantly some quite insightful ones from New Zealand, about people who belong to groups tend to uh, have better mental health, tend to feel uh, um, they have a better lifestyle, even though their lifestyle might be very poor. They tend to even live longer and I, I thought, well, I'm not sure if I believe all that because, you know, it's still in its um, early research. But what I thought was interesting is that I think there is something in it. And whether it's you're going to live longer or whether you're going to have a happier life, if you have a good social network, people tend to not feel lonely and isolated. So therefore, if they don't feel lonely and isolated, they're probably going to feel happier so I thought, right, I'm going to set out to try and find these groups of people and just explore them and uh, see what what their makeup was and what they got out of it and how they were basically using the this membership in groups to enhance their lives. So I started with Morris and um, Morris Dancers and contacted a number of groups and two of them came back and said, yeah, come along, you know, come and you know, join in. So I, I initially spent a, quite a lot of time just following these groups around. I went to their practice, first of all, showed them a load of my pictures and, and said, look, I'm a credible photographer, you know. So I had to, first of all, win them over, <laughs> get their confidence. Um, yep. And then, you know, I would turn up at all their different uh, sort of, they used to call them dance outs, and I'd see these sides dancing. But I was more interested in not, just the dancing which is over photographed but I was interested in the people you know and what they were doing in their downtime and other time and how they related to each other so it, it it's a a wide-ranging collection of pictures and yeah of course there's some dancing pictures in there but um, there's also portraits and other pictures about the, about the group because I'm trying to sort of find out about them and and then I would go around and ask them and they you know what they did for a job and suddenly what what used to be something associated with peasants and then eventually uh, rural people it, it, all walks of life are involved in it since. Um, its renaissance in the uh, early 20th century to the point now where you've got doctors and surgeons dancing alongside brewers and someone from quick quick fit garage with you know or someone from uh, the local chemist you know there are people from all walks of life getting involved they just seem to be having such a lot of fun so i photographed them and and tried to get over what it was to be a member of this group and then I, I thought, well, there are other groups, and I expanded it, and that's when I started to um, hang out, if you like, with groups of like reenactors. These are people who try and um, reenact historical events. So they wear, you know, they, they wear all the costumes and they invest heavily in in the in the garb. 
and the equipment. And um, there's one series there, which is the Battle of Waterloo. And it's so realistic. And I wanted to photograph it in a way that was so realistic. But I also wanted to photograph an aspect that they thought was important. And that was that, you know, it's a battle that people still die. And so they had casualties and, uh, and limping off, you know, not real casualties, but, you know, the acting out the casualties. And they had people acting out as um, corpses on the floor. And so I photographed this whole battle to show it in that way. And it really is not just about reenactors. It's, it's a comment, I think, about um, war and conflict. And it, it's a marvelous series. I'm looking at it right now. And, and I should tell everyone, you know, the, the portraits are of two types. You know, the, there is the head on, you know, sort of, hey, I'm taking your picture portrait. But there are then, for lack of a better term, you know, street portraits, action portraits. I mean, clearly focused on an individual, but they're not sitting there posed. Uh, I'm, I'm looking right now at the young man doing the bayonet charge um in that yeah I mean, second they, world war yeah second world war there and you go through these and you know looking at the royal horse artillery gunners here i'm looking at uh, the highlanders i mean it, it's provocative really compelling work that, that you're getting uh in the side of although you know i i gotta complain these are only four years old now um they they, they have not aged like your the rest of your photos <laughs> Give them time. <laughs> Lay them down in the carriage. <laughs> You're not supposed to show your photos for 40 years, man. Come on. <laughs> uh, um, I, you know, I'm looking at these. Tell, tell me about um, the, the climate change activists uh, series. Okay. Well, it first came to my attention uh, when I was in London. My wife was visiting one of her Irish aunts and uh, the bridge just down the road was um, completely barricaded up with uh, climate change activists protesting, and so um, I thought, oh, they look they look interesting. That's another group, you know. That I should perhaps find out a bit more. So I spent probably about a year going to as many of their actions as uh, as I could, and what I was trying to do is <clears throat> not just photograph. The obvious stuff but just photograph them as people and photograph them in ways that tried to show that they were um, doing something that they really believed in and that uh, it took time and it took effort and it also led probably to considerable amount of hardship for, for many of them because obviously they, they were arrested and carted off to uh, to a police station some might have got charged a lot of them got released it was also an interesting thing for me because i lived through the 80s you know all the miners strikes and the closing of the greater london council and all the kind of three-day week stuff that we had and then the poll tax riots and then it seemed to all stop you know and seemed to me that young people lost their political awareness they weren't really interested and then suddenly it came back again and here it is now you know they're um they're protesting about the climate and they're protesting about a lot of things they're not necessarily protesting about the things i think they should be because i think you know <clears throat> we have um a lot of things much closer to home like the, you know, we're currently going through this economic crisis but we've been going through things like that that they've just let go by they haven't you know done anything about it and because of that 
unionization has taken a hit and uh, after you know after the sort of long conservative governments we ended up with many of the uh, workers losing their unions and losing the people you know the the organizations that fought for better working conditions but going back to the climate change so it was it was an it was an attempt to show a new group of people out there trying to express their their own opinions about what was going on and say hang on a minute we don't agree with this and we want you to do that and so that's really what you see there is 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 a group of pictures it's loosely divided into four groups um which when you go to the website you'll see but the last group is all about um arrest and what i was trying to to do is get myself right in close <clears throat> and photograph um the the people that were being arrested um at the point of you know the handcuffs and being pushed into the van and so you will see even uh there, there was a blind man being arrested and that was very interesting because I, I wanted to see how they'd handle that well now david there's an interesting question here because i'm looking at that series right now and you've got some um pictures of people being arrested and in the background of the picture there are two other photographers taking pictures sort of at you where is david wright in these images what what, what is your stamp do you think that would distinguish yours because you, you talk about these being very personal projects what what is it that you see in there that you say that's mine well in the climate change one yes or or any other but uh well i think the climate change one is probably a harder one to pin down but i think uh if you were to pick one of the uh more recent ones such as the um the pagans group i'm not a pagan um actually i'm a roman catholic but i was interested in this group because apparently they're the largest um group in the country a large you know expanding group of sort of believers what they're saying is that they're getting more and more members by the day and i was lucky because um one one of the uh guys in one of the morris groups i found out that he was a pagan <coughs> and i <laughs> i undenied for some months and talked about it with my family because we were very worried and that if i go and photograph this you know what will happen will the world come to an end or something you know will i get sucked into some <laughs> heathen coven and things like that <laughs> it's nothing like that they're not dennis wheatley stuff and um you know they're not all in the forest dancing around with no clothes on having human sacrifices they are ordinary people who believe in their own particular gods in their own ways there's quite a lot of stuff that isn't up on the website yet, and um, there's you get a glimpse in that series of um, a pagan wedding. The rest of it I'm still working on. I was invited to what's called a hand fasting, and much of what we have in our um, Christian weddings dates back to hand fasting. Hand fasting is something you know, during the actual ceremony, their hands are wrapped uh, around a kind of um, wreath and ribbons are put round it, and they, they they say various sort of promises and things. And that's still done in many churches today. That near Towards the end of a marriage ceremony, the priest will wrap um, his or her, I'm not quite sure what you call it, scarf-type thing, round the hands of the bride and groom as part of the ceremony. What What is it about that, that's, that, that I can say is about me? Well, I'm 
actually looking at a, a group of people and photographing them from, I think, quite a di- in a different stance than the way most people would look at them because I'm not sort of looking at it as here's an event, neither am I looking at it as um, here's a, a group of weird people. What I'm actually doing is is trying to look at them as something to do with my own religion but also something to do with my own people because pagans and Christians have all can all find their roots back in sort of Anglo-Saxon and pre-ancient Britain heritages. So do the pictures, can you say the pictures are David Wright? Well, I don't know really. I mean, that's a, that's a tough one. I like to think that some people might say yeah right I can recognize your picture I mean I can recognize an Ansel Adams picture but there's a there's a guy who lives over your way in Canada called Gary Nylander who shoots on um 10-8 his pictures are just like Ansel Adams <laughs> they're brilliant um how can you say something is totally original I, I think as I someone said to me recently oh your pictures they're, they're nothing new you know you've seen it all before and, and to some extent, yeah, you, you might be right. that You've probably seen some of the events before. But the one thing that you are doing as a photographer, uh, you're seeing the world through your eyes. And, you're, and therefore, when someone else looks at your pictures, they're seeing what you saw through your eyes. And hopefully, one or two pictures you know, might be distinctive enough for them to say, oh, yeah, I recognize your style. Like, I can recognize Van Gogh's style or someone like that but it's it's not that easy you know i mean ask don mccullen you know can can, can you recognize his style it's it's hard isn't it martin parr who you know is actually a, a big supporter of f8 it's hard to tell the difference between a lot of his stuff there's something there if you look very closely there's a quirkiness about some of his pictures or there's a very bright um, colours with when he uses his flash in you know, his pictures of New Brighton, but um, I'm not going to say I'm someone who you can recognise as totally original, or you can even recognise as these are distinctively my photos. What I hope is that you're going to look at my photos and say, "Well, well they're interesting," and um, yeah, there's something there which I hadn't known or hadn't thought about before, but also. That's they're a series, so that's a story I hadn't thought about before. So the pictures aren't necessarily designed to be looked at individually; they are designed to be looked at as a story and therefore a comment. And 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 therein, I think, is is one of the things that I think does distinguish your work. Because when I talk about photography, you know, photography of others, you know, I'm all about sympathy and empathy and and a, a kind of sensitivity to the. To the story that's being told, which is, I, I want to shift gears here just a little bit. Um, but before we leave the pagans, I got to tell you the picture of Matt, the guy sitting there with, with the cap on with the horns. Absolutely love that picture. Uh, <laughs> and he's, and, and, and if you knew, he is actually um, a male nurse. Okay. Uh, doing, uh, you know, an ordinary job for the National Health Service with psychiatric patients. Tough job, works hard makes cider at home um you know <laughs> and uh he's not he's very unassuming well the the the, the, the look on his face looking at you is wonderful <laughs> <laughs> what i was going to say is that uh, it was a very difficult group to um break into and I, I was just lucky i guess that once <clears throat> i got talking to melvin 
He then introduced me to Matt, that's the person who you see there, and his wife, and they then introduced me to some other people and said, yeah, come along to this. And uh, and then, you know, I got invited to the wedding and uh, it, it just expanded. Now I've moved up to Yorkshire, it's slightly harder now. I've got to try and find another group that will accept me and trust me because it's all about <laughs> trust. You know, the, the trouble is nowadays that when, when, when you get a camera out, people you know look at you if if it's a phone fine but if it's a camera with all the lenses and all that stuff you know are you the press what you're going to do is it going in the papers and all of that you know they become a bit suspicious so you have to get their trust you have to show them what you're doing and um and they've got to realize that you know you you're serious and you're going to do a, a serious job you owe it to them to try and be you know the best you possibly can and do the best pictures and be as sort of honest about what you're doing with them as you can. Oh man, that that, that is fantastic advice. Uh, I want to get to F8 in just a second, but before we do that, it's the middle of 2022. Why are you shooting black and white film? I ask myself that, especially when I look at the price. <coughs> Kodak, Kodak seem to have doubled their price recently. Uh, that's why I've moved over to uh, Ilford HP5. Why? There's two reasons. Firstly, I don't like sitting at computers much. Um, you know, just before we did this podcast, I had to sit there and download Chrome and all the rest of it to try and get this thing going. It's not my idea of fun. In a dark room, splashing around in chemicals and, uh, you know, all of that stuff and is, is what photography to me is all about. Uh, I mean, I'm not in the business of coating my own plates, although I probably would do if I knew how, but uh, I do like two things. The delayed pleasure, if you like. When you take a picture, I'm often in a position where I think, yes, that's, I've got it, that's great. You know, There'll be others, but th there might be one or two I think, yeah, I've, that's brilliant. And then when I process it, you know, I'm just so keen to pull the, the, the film out of the tank, hold it up to the light, chemicals dripping all down my arms, and uh, looking at it thinking, brilliant that was exactly what i was after and then going into the dark room and making a print the sheer craft involved <clears throat> you know it's not about putting a lasso around an area on photoshop and saying right let's select that and clone it or make it darker or lighter it's you've got to do things with your hands and you've got to mask things out and you've got to change the chemistry it's a craft it's it's that stuff that whole craft approach from the photography in the camera to the photography in the darkroom. And I learned that when I was at college. And I guess I wanted to keep doing it like that um, rather than sit at a computer. But I do find myself nowadays sitting at a computer because um, <laughs> I can't print quickly enough. Um, so I now print exhibition stuff <clears throat> and things I want to hang on my own walls. Um, and the rest is probably scanned or copied and, uh, then I have to sit at a computer and do the grading and processing. Oh, man. You know, post-production of any sort in a darkroom or at a computer is its own art form. And we all find various, you know, heavens and hells in all of that. Tell me about F8. You, you are a curator there. So, I mean, tell me, tell me and tell everybody what that project is. Okay. Well, if you go to Instagram and you put into the magnifying glass <clears throat> F8 documentary, 
you'll come across this treasure trove of documentary photographs. It was, if you can imagine, we were three or four months into lockdown. My son had just given me this phone and said, there you go, there's a phone. You can fiddle around with that, you know, and do stuff. So I said, all right, well, get me Instagram. So we got Instagram and I started posting. And then um, suddenly this fella uh, started liking my pictures and commenting about them and writing long kind of interesting comments and things. And it turned out that he's about my age and he used to live in my town, Hornchurch, where, <laughs> where I lived for sort of 20 odd years. And he'd moved out to Norfolk. But we seemed to have a, a thing going about what we liked and what we didn't like. We liked a certain kind of documentary work um, which uh, to begin with, we called it classic British documentary, which might be a bit pompous, really. But it's it's the kind of stuff that you do see right up until probably the 90s. And then obviously everything went color and, and changed and disappeared. But um, it, it was very popular in the 50s. I've mentioned Picture Post and those kind of picture magazines. It was working in picture stories, and it was also, there was something called a long narrative that we liked, which is writing at length about pictures. And um, I know, and I fully understand, and sometimes I agree with the person who says a picture's worth a thousand words and pictures should speak for themselves. But basically, a photograph is nothing but a bunch of marks on a piece of paper, we bring meanings to it. It doesn't have any meanings on its own. And therefore, a photograph can have limitless meanings, which is one of its sort of joys. But also, people want to know something about um, a photograph. So even if you have no n nothing else other than, you know, there it is, um, they then say, well, what's the title? Or when did you take it? And then they start asking you questions. So, you know, we're not in the kind of amateur photography market of, right, here's everything you need to know about the equipment and the processing and all of that stuff. It's a photo story and it's background or it's a story in itself. And we, we said, right, let's, let's set up something and let's get a few people um, signed up to it. And so we launched ourselves in the middle of the lockdown. This is in July, two years ago. And the idea is that uh, each week someone does a takeover. They, post a picture each day and they can put a long narrative to it if they want but the idea is it's a collection of pictures that have a theme or a story and uh, we started out with five members and then we would have guests it's grown in members and it's grown in popularity <clears throat> to the point now where um you know people say to me i'm oh right you know if i say would you like to be a guest and do a take up i'd be honored and i think crikey you know that's great i mean <laughs> brilliant you know i've i've got really kind of well-known photographers telling me this people like uh sid shelton and well mike abrahams has just joined us recently he is a phenomenal photographer barry lewis he's the oscar barnack uh, medal winner he's numerous books about butlins and the london underground all the, these people you know are what I call, you know, much better than me, you know, and and I'd be honoured that they say, it's brilliant, good, okay, and and so we each every eight weeks we um we that's called a round that thing we then publish a magazine we started publishing um in December of that year 
we're now on number 10. Uh, it sells out within a week. It's a very high quality magazine. Um, I'm not going to say it's better than Frames. <laughs> Frames, <laughs> Frames is brilliant. <laughs> um, but uh, F8 documentary is more of a niche thing than Frames. It, it's um, yeah. it's solely about documentary, but it, it's past and present. And it's not just about um, showing what you know photographers work from the past it's about showing new audiences um the work that photographers from the past have done but also it's about showing the work of young or new documentary photographers who aren't getting a platform so they're getting an opportunity to get their work out there and sort of get known and maybe get work as well if they're looking for it so it has a number of targets, and that's what we're trying to achieve. And um, hopefully, you know, it's getting there. It is. I mean, I mean, even though you've allowed some color work onto the site, man. Uh, it, it, oh, definitely. It is. It's, uh, yeah, we're not. <laughs> we're not limit. It started. All, it started all black and white because that's what we all yeah. we all did. And it also was a pretty much a black and white magazine. But then I, because I I started the magazine up. Um, I said, well, I've got to get some color in here. But also we had people who we knew were great photographers and they had color work. And so, you know, why not? It, it's It's got to be the right kind of um, documentary to get into F8. And it's also got to be British. It has to be shot in the British Isles. The photographer can be from anywhere in the world. So if you're out there, anyone, and you think you've got something, you know, get in touch with us because always on the lookout for, you know, new new work. I, I will be sending you several hundred pictures to consider this <laughs> afternoon. <laughs> oh man, th this this is so cool! And and everybody, it's F eight documentary at Instagram. Uh, it's you know, David Wright photography or dot photography on the web. David, this is. I know you haven't done interviews. You've turned them down for a long time. I feel honored. I feel really happy. This has been a wonderful conversation. Thank you very much. Well, thank you, Scott, and I, I must say I feel honoured because, um, you know, it's something to be interviewed by Frames, so I'm really sort of pleased to uh, have been asked, and it's been great to sort of spend some time talking to you. Yeah, the pleasure has been all mine. Thank you, sir. Talk to you later. Frames, because excellent photography belongs on paper. Visit us at www.readframes.com.